You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. All right. Um, let's see here. It says we're recording finally. Are you hearing me? I'm hearing you. Are you hearing me, Bracken? <laughs> I'm hearing you loud and clear, big buddy. Uh, folks, I'm going to be honest with you. It's Tuesday morning at 9.46 a.m., and we are just recording this. And I will say Bracken is first to blame, and now I am second to blame. Bracken, do you want to tell people why we did not record this episode yesterday ahead of time? Yeah. Kirk went out and got day drunk. No, you thought it was Sunday because it was a long weekend. Yes, yes. I don't know what day it is because it's coronavirus and Brayden didn't wear his Friday shirt. Brayden, who is seven now, um, for the last three years, starting when he went to 4K, started wearing a black um, collared shirt every Friday. It was his best shirt and Friday was the day that he got to be done with school and spend the weekend with Lisa. He's a mama's boy all the way through. So he would celebrate that by wearing his Friday shirt. And throughout coronavirus, this has continued for three years now, we've increased by increasingly big sizes of this shirt so he can still have it. It's the only thing tying us to any semblance of date and time is when he wears his black collared shirt, we know it's Friday. He (laughs) forgot it this Friday. So we got to Memorial Day and I thought it was Sunday. And I had my phone, just left it up in the bed all day and spent the day with my family. And at like 4 p.m. went up and checked it and had a message from Kirk like, when are we recording? So You had a number of messages for me. That's true. Second part is I said, hey, I can do it after 8 p.m. or you can or you can do it tomorrow. And you're like, well, I've been hitting the sauce. I said, I've been drinking a little whiskey. I'm up north on a cabin trip, folks. I'm on a nine-day vacation and Bracken stood me up. I tried to get in touch with him like three times. So I said, screw it. I'm going to have a Memorial Day. So anyways, we didn't record yesterday. And then this morning, I'm on different technology using my girlfriend's laptop. And we had some major issues getting this thing to work. So after an hour and a half of trying to figure this out, we're finally making this happen. So if you're getting twinges of like anxiousness because you haven't seen this podcast pop up in your feed, it's because uh, we messed up a little. But we're on it now, guys. And okay, we're going to do our best to clean up the audio, but Kirk is literally in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So hopefully I don't sound uh, like I'm talking through a fan. I don't have my regular setup because it wouldn't work with this computer. Um, and those are our excuses, guys, but we're here for you. We're doing it. So that's where we're at. We've been drinking caffeine for the last hour and a half, trying to stay sharp and not fight with each other. <laughs> I'm twitching like a damn squirrel over here. Bragging. Um, so uh, what were you doing yesterday for Memorial Day anyways? Why were you so busy standing me up? What was going on? You know, I wasn't busy. I was just spending the time with the family. As you, you should. Know, we've, like we've talked about, we have the Crocker compound going with two houses next door to each other. So we just kind of spent all day. We uh, morning workouts together and then we did uh, a cookout in, for lunch, um, put on a parade for our neighborhood. It's just the kids put streamers on their bikes and went up and down. We did our own little Memorial Day parade. Mm. Uh, just stuff start to finish. Um, Brayden created a board game this week. 
and it's okay. shock shockingly good. But so we we it's called the game of bones. <laughs> it's a, it's a dinosaur game. But we 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 played uh, many rounds of the game of bones last night. It's pretty intense. So we just did family stuff, start to finish, and tried not to sweat our lives away. You know, that's actually you should be putting your phone down and not paying attention to it when you're spending time with your family. So I I forgive you for yesterday. You know what? All three of our kids now have requested phones because they can't wait until they're adults so they can have their phones. And I've realized that means we're on it too often. Yeah, but you're you're actually probably one of the best. It depends how you look at this because you don't get back to people very quickly. I think that's, no, I do not. that's starting to be a, a known thing. Uh, but to your credit, you're just not paying attention to your phone and that's you're living life. That's how it should be. Yeah, text messages to me are like sticky notes that I put on the fridge. Like, yeah. When I clear my schedule, I'm going to start working my way through these sticky notes rather than I get it and answer it in real time. A lot of my apps, I don't have notifications turned on for because mm -hmm. I just don't want to constantly be on my phone in front of my kids. So yes, it's definitely an awful thing. Sometimes people wait eight, 10, 12 hours for an answer. Um, but I'd like to think it's making me a better dad. I don't know. We'll that's, see. That's all that really matters. If some guy messaging you about what's the best OCR shoe doesn't get a response for a day, he doesn't matter compared to your children, Racken. So I think you're think you're doing it right. Um, all right. See, I'm uh, I got my phone on silent always. So if somebody calls me, if I get I don't hear anything. So but all my notifications are on. So when I look at my phone, they pop up. I'm a little more compulsive with my phone, unfortunately. But you know, I uh, should I should try to strike a better balance. Um. So let's jump into this deal today, Bracken. Uh, we're doing a Q&A today, guys, because we got a bunch of good questions from you that we wanted to dive into. But first, I want to let you guys know this week's contest winner. Um, we got two more weeks left of this contest. The rules are, you guys have been killing it, by the way, writing reviews for us. You got to write a review for us. We randomly put you in a uh, uh, number generator and we pick one of you. And uh, I think we got, I don't know, like sifting through like 35 of you guys now. Um, but this week, so basically write a review for us. You get a free month of coaching from either Bracken or myself, and it's fully tailored to you, baby, to get you to become the best uh, runner or OCR athlete possible. This last week, week's winner, last yeah. week's winner just started up. We had our, our final video chat yesterday, I believe, or the day okay. before uh, my weekends run together. It was Sunday, the real Sunday. We had our a video chat and he's all ready to roll. Now he's got five weeks of training. I threw in a bonus week for him. Wow. And well, he's doing that uh, that the next uh, that Spartan trifecta virtual weekend. Oh yeah, yeah. So I threw him a recovery week after that before his month starts up. So he's ready to rock and roll. Kenny Wade. He picked you over me, and I've been heartbroken ever since. Bracken. All right. This, this next one will take you. This week's winner, Sandy Go Joey. Sandy Go Joey. Congratulations! You won a free month of coaching. You wrote a very nice review, and. Uh, you say at 55 years old that you hear maintaining is improving and you don't believe that crap and you've had new vigor from listening to this podcast and you think you can still get better and I agree with you. So reach out to one of us for your free month of coaching, Sandy Go Joey. Congrats, Sandy. Let's get rocking and rolling. All right. So we are, uh, we're going Q&A, guys. We got some good ones in here. So uh, I tend to run the social media a little more often than Bracken. So I got the questions in front of me and you're going to have the first crack at them, Bracken. How does that sound? Let's, let's do it. Unless you ever get one that you're like, all right, I'm going to ask it and answer it because this is my wheelhouse. Right. You're passionate about it, like weighted core exercises. Yes, yes, I am. Damn right, I am. I've started doing those. 
Last, really? last little last little life story before we get going here, Kirk. I like life story. I, I I jacked by June. That that's that's me and my sister's new goal. We're jacked by the end of June, which for me means core exercises. I, I recommitted to core and I did weighted core for the first time on Friday. For the first time in years. And I was ripped apart. And she's like, Well, we've committed to this. You need to come to my performance gym with me tomorrow. She's got some high-end basketball trainer that works her out like the Milwaukee Bucks train there like it's all it's all when we were in the gym there were 12 people who had been drafted at that or or were about to be drafted like it was it was it's a legit workout place um and like 30 percent of what he put us through was core work so one day after doing my first weighted core in years I hit an even harder core session and my core is so rocked I am like a crippled old man right now does it hurt to sit up out of bed like that sort of situation? It hurts to do everything. I sneezed yesterday and tears came into my eyes. <laughs> That's what you get for putting it off, Bracken. That's right. All right. So continue um, now. Continue. All right. I am very passionate about core exercises, folks. By the way, if you're sitting there doing crunches for 10 minutes on the floor, I'm going to smack you. You need to be doing like 10, 12 reps of heavy core movements. You're going to get the most bang for your buck. Why treat your core differently than you would treat your legs or your upper body squats or push-ups, anything like that, low rep count, heavy weight, get it done. And then you can end up like Bracken, crippled, which is desirable. All right. Hopefully, eventually, I end up like Kirk taking shots in my 16-pack while hanging from a bar. Yeah, baby. All right. I got too much coffee in me. First question, Justin Thornley asks, it's about 20 degrees warmer now that summer has started. My heart rate is 10 to 15 beats per minute higher at the same pace. Should I run slower or train by feel? Love this question. What do you think, Brad? First of all, I think this is like the most appropriate question we could possibly have for right now. Uh, Lisa this morning said, if you don't have a topic, please talk about running in the hot weather so I can feel better about myself. Everyone's talking mm -hmm. about this. It's getting really muggy. Our nation is hitting like record highs. Um, so I look at running in heat and especially humidity. I treat it the same as altitude training. I mm -hmm. just say pace goes out the window on your easy days and you actually get an extra eight to 10 beats on your heart rate range. In my opinion, when I race at altitude, I give myself an extra 10 beats on my heart rate limiter. That's what I did in Tahoe. That's what I've done in Breckenridge. It's just instantly it happens. And so all my easy and recovery days, I refuse to worry about pace. I run off effort and I let my heart rate get 10 beats higher as long as I'm working easy. But the caveat with that is that if you're lowering stress on certain days, you have to keep it on others. So my quality workout days, I still am a slave to pace. I make myself hit pace if I'm doing interval days. Now, if I'm doing if I'm doing OCR simulators or whatever, then yeah, I'm still going off RPE, but I make myself hit pace on my interval days, but I also still treat it like altitude. If I had mile repeats at 5K pace, I'm not going to hit that at altitude on the same rest. So I either add more rest or I shorten it down to thousands or 800 so I can still hit my pace. And then I might add more reps in. Um, 800s might turn to 400s, but instead of doing 10 of them, I might do 20 of them. Or I might keep them as 800s, but instead of 90 second rest, I might give myself two or three minutes because your body needs it. So I still hit my pace, but I shorten the reps or I lengthen the rest. Okay. I like that. The one thing I'll add to that, because you hit that uh, on the head, is uh, you do you do adapt a little bit as the summer is going to wear on. You're going to notice that like cardiac uh, drift or whatever is going to decrease. Just like if you were to move to altitude, 
uh, you know, there's a about a six week or six, yeah, six week adjustment or acclimation phase. You should notice that come down, I think, a little bit as the summer wears on. Um, as you get better at kind of your body, just vasodilating, cooling the body. So um, I agree with you on that. I think I think you just kind of set that rev limiter a little higher and accept that's what it is right now. Um, if you do notice you're chronically fatigued, though, if, if it is starting to affect you, if you're a week or two into this and you notice you're, you're just not feeling as good as you want to, then I might actually watch your heart rate. Um, but you just kind of got to suck it up right now. Those first 80, 90 degree days are just kind of brutal. And it is what it is. And I would not get overly obsessed with keeping your heart rate super low. That's what I feel. A few practical tips, uh, common sense, maybe I shouldn't say common sense because that sounds demeaning to say to someone, but like <laughs> practically thinking, run earlier late in the day on your easy and your recovery days, go at the coolest point. My quality days, I still try to hit at the time I'm going to be racing. So I get tough dealing with the bad conditions. And this is another reason to get on trails. You get some some tree cover. It's a little cooler in there. It's just a little bit more doable. And then finally, the last thing you can do is you can refrigerate your running clothes overnight. Interesting. Or you can toss them in a cooler. You can even soak them in a cold bucket of water. This is something I, Mike Ferguson and I, when we first started coaching, he is terrified of running in heat. He can't stand it. I'm sure you know that about him, Kurt. Yeah. So when I first started working with him, leading into his first race in the heat, I had him pack a cooler with ice water and put his race clothes in there, and he left it in his car. I watched he finished it. his warm up, did his last stride, threw those on, and he had a good race. He had uh, he had that cold soaked shirt over his neck at the start line uh, yep. before the race. Yeah, and I, I believe that was maybe before Minnesota. I think that was his first big win and breakout race. And yep. we had 92 degrees at the start. The race was delayed to like 10 a.m. because we didn't have an ambulance there. And so it got pushed back and it was hot. Yeah. And he ran out of his mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm a big believer in doing things to lower your core temperature right before you get started. In the Athens Marathon where the U.S. ran out of their minds and other people crumbled because it was in the 90s at 8 at night with 90% humidity. They had cold um, gear they were throwing on. If you looked at the trials in LA, they're putting on their um, cold vests and cooling sleeves. Like getting your temperature down is huge. So yep. throw the clothes in the fridge, throw them on in the morning, and you get about a, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes of like wearing what feels like an ice pack, but not as intense while you're moving. All right, we're going to move to the next one. Uh, Justin had a couple of good ones, and I just want to touch on this real quick. If there's any ladies out there who are wondering about how quick they might need to be, uh, we'll just spend 30 seconds on this. But uh, for a female elite Spartan racer, what is a good 5K time to be competitive on like a local level, like a local Spartan race? And then what do you, what kind of 5K time do you think it takes to be top 10 at a national series race? Um, for this one, uh, first of all, 5K time is fairly irrelevant at times, depending on the course, you know, horses for courses. If we have a climbing course and you're a flatlander running a fast 5k, you're still going to get destroyed on a climbing course. Um, let's just say it's a flat national series course. Okay. We'll just say that. I think to be competitive on the local level, I think if a woman is, and let's say maybe podiuming at a local level, I think if a woman is running under oh, 20 minutes, maybe even 19, I think you have potential to podium in a Spartan race. That's roughly, let's call it 6.30 pace or under for a women in a 5K, I think potentially could podium in a local Spartan race. Uh, what is your take on that? Yeah, I kind of look at it the same way. For If you just want to be competitive at your local scene, break, the foot speed wise, breaking 20 for women and breaking 18 for guys that gets you enough speed that you can probably be in the conversation if you're really good at obstacles and carries. Mm -hmm. For 
podiuming, I think if you're breaking 19 as a woman and you're breaking 17 as a man, you can probably count yourself as a contender at any of the smaller races. And then national series, I drop it down a full minute. Yep. If you want a podium as a guy, you got to be sub 16. Like there's no way around it. And as a woman, you have to be sub 19, I believe. Yeah, I think even quicker. I think maybe even sub 18, to be honest. Sorry, sorry. Sub 18 for the women. Sub 18, yeah. yes. And even yeah. if you look at the climbers, like Matt Novakovich we had on, he was a great climber. He was always in sub-16 shape when he was making his podiums. Yep. You just, you got to have that engine. Yeah, sub-18 shape for women in the 5K, sub-16 shape for men in the 5K, competitive on a flat National Series Spartan race. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and that, honestly, in the men's field, we're looking at, I'm going to say 15 or 20 of us that can go sub-16. So then it's, mm -hmm. then it's all nuances within your fitness and racing that yep. really separate. And then the point there is it's not, that doesn't mean you train your 5k, you break 16, you're there. It means you get your climbing, your carries, your OCR, everything there while being able to break 16 and 18 mm -hmm. for the women. Like it's, that's not the indicator. It's when you have everything else, you still have to have that speed. Yep. Um, next question. Uh, we got by SD Berg, one, two, three, four. Uh, he asks, or she asks, uh, most effective running workouts for improving one mile time. Um, I just have one thing I want to say about this and I don't want to, we could go into a whole episode on workouts to get faster at the mile. Um, the one, the one thing I'm going to say about this is that most of us never even hit mile pace in any workouts ever, ever, ever. We're running 5k pace, 10k pace, threshold pace. And those are what are really going to, those are the staples to getting better at like hour long races. If you want to get yep. better at running a mile time trial, you need to run short, fast, spicy stuff up front. And I would probably give yourself a lot of rest. I would let you hit those intervals, high quality, high pace, faster than fast as, or faster than your goal. One mile time trial stuff that is way, way, way out of your comfort zone. For example, if you don't do much speed and you want to increase your mile time trial, I may give you four, eight, 400 meter repeats with like two or three minutes rest between them, a lot of rest. So you can really hit them hard. So you can run faster than you're comfortable with. And I would focus on that stuff. Um, weekly and i think you'd see your time come down um again most of our training is done at a slower pace and that's why that mile time trial hurts so much that's also why a lot of you are disappointed in your mile time trials because you're not used to running that pace so how could you expect it to go well so yeah. um that's my that's my overarching opinion on that yeah I, I don't have too much to add to that i'll just echo it in my own you know frame by my own um opinions on that and the the, the mile trial doesn't matter we use it because it's a great indicator of how our fitness is is affecting us. Like if you get better across the board, your mile is going to drop a little bit and it's good to have that. And it's good to use it for a pacing um, conversions, but I don't think you should train to get better at the mile. You should train to get better at whatever your event is and then see how it also affects your mile time trial. But yeah, the only way to get faster at a specific distance is to spend time running that pace or faster. Yeah, That is the single greatest. So I'm not going to give you a workout. I'm going to give you pace to work on. If you want to get better at the mile, you have to run mile pace or faster in training. But I do think that the single most important indicator of racing ability is lactate threshold. It is not mile or 5k or anything. It's your threshold. But as you improve that threshold, your mile should improve as well. No, I just keep that threshold work in there. Keep that longer grindier stuff in there, but you're going to have to add those shorter, faster, more rest type interval workouts into your program that will translate to your mile time trial. Um, next by, uh, teach CC Johnson. This is Chris Johnson. He's a Minnesota boy. What's up, Chris? Uh, he says any favorite books on running? I've heard you mention Matt Fitzgerald, but others, 
Um, we referenced the Matt Fitzgerald 80-20 running, which is a principle that we've preached enough. I think if you listen to this podcast, you've heard us talk that. So 80-20 running by Matt Fitzgerald, absolutely. Get your hands on that. And then the other one that I actually have with me on vacation here up at the cabin, and I've been meaning to dive into it more, is training for the uphill athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I am just opening it, but I've heard really good things. Have you read that book, Bracken? I have, and I like it. It's good, just common sense knowledge combined with scientific knowledge. I really like it. Yeah. I I don't really know what the contents are yet. Maybe I'll get back to you on that. Do you have any other books? I've heard just so many athletes, even accomplished athletes have been talking about how training for the uphill athlete has really uh, been helpful for their climbing game. I've seen Rhea Kobo post about it. I've seen Faye Stenning post about it. Um, And they're getting benefit out of it and they're on top of our sport. So I would recommend getting your hands on that. Um, That's my only one recommendation right now. Do you have any others, Bracken? So from like the training knowledge side, I think everyone should probably read um, one of the versions of, of um, Jack Daniels uh, training um, book, Jack Daniels Guide to Training. I think mm-hmm. that um, I really like the triathletes training Bible. It's not specific to our sport, but there's so many carryovers between multi-sport and ours that you might only like one third of the book, but it's it's one third that you really use. Um, I like uh, total heart rate training. Um, that's another good book you can read. But then also, I think it's important to read things that just get you fired up to run. So the classics, mm-hmm. Running with the Buffaloes is a yeah. great one. Um, I do like, um, I mean, it's so cliche, but Once a Runner, I've read probably six or seven times. It just captures the story of someone going after a goal. It's a good read. I like Steve, yeah, I like Steve Scott's biography. Um, mm-hmm. basically any biography about a runner is great to read, but yeah, I would start with those. And then you, you go to the Amazon cart and see what else people have read like that. And it just takes you down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Steve Prefontaine fascinates you. His, uh, biography is pretty good too. And worth the read. Um, read that. yeah, it's good. Um, all right. Corey Edwards one asks your go-to nutrition before a Spartan race, the age old question. Now Bracken and I, we're going to tell you this. Bracken and I go back and forth on if we want to do a nutrition episode. Uh, we've debated this. We get a lot of questions on nutrition, and uh, there's no one right way. We could we think it's overdone a little bit. We may still give you what you want in the nutrition side of things. It's just so person specific and experiment mm-hmm. for yourself, situational, that we just didn't want to dive down that yet. We may, but uh, for Corey Edwards, one um, uh, save your energy for the uh, the race is what I say. So you don't want to be eating like really heavy that morning. Save uh, you know. Uh, for example, simple carbs, in my opinion, easy to break down. Uh, Lindsey Webster and Ryan Atkins make a big plate of white rice and put maple syrup on it. And that's what they have for maybe a little almond butter. And they have that for breakfast. For me, I have uh, cereal and almond milk, very easy to digest. I can plow through that in an hour and it's in my system and I'm ready to go. Um, simple, quick oats uh, versus old fashioned oats, for example, would be a better choice. You just want something that your body doesn't have to work hard at in digesting. That's the simple uh, answer there, in my opinion. Uh, Bracken, I know you have a little different philosophy on morning nutrition, don't you? No, that's my philosophy uh, entirely. You get something simple that your body can handle and it's going to give you fast fuel. Um, but I also just go with what I know that I can, my palate can handle in the morning. And so sometimes it's oatmeal with like some dark chocolate in there and maybe a cut mm-hmm. up banana. Sometimes it's peanut butter and jelly bagel. Sometimes it's leftover pizza from the night before. It's, mm-hmm. it's the, those are kind of my three that I know I can handle in a shorter race. Um, sometimes it's just like a pack of gummy bears and a power bar, you know, like, 
I, I generally show up with some like snacky things like that, really sugary, carby stuff. And then I'll mm -hmm. have something like oatmeal along and then I'll have some leftovers. And I wake up and the thing that doesn't make me gag when I look at it is generally what I eat. Because mm -hmm. race morning, for whatever reason, our body is like, they it already knows you're going into that fight or flight mode and certain things are just nauseating to me. Yeah. Another thing too is um, something that I push on athletes when they ask is people are like, oh, I need to be eating complex carbs and I need to be, you know, brown rice over white rice and sweet potato over sweet potatoes over white potatoes and things like that. But really, if you're an athlete and you're training, you're always one, getting ready for your next race or workout and two, recovering from your last effort. I push people towards white potatoes, white rice, uh, quick digesting stuff. Um, as an athlete, I don't know if the, the complex carbs are necessarily your best friend because of the delayed reaction. So my cupboard's full of basmati white rice. I keep it simple. It gets in my system quick. I recover. Uh, tell me recover and fuel for the next thing. So I think the whole grains are pushed a little hard on us endurance athletes and my body responds really well to that quick burning fuel. So that's just my, my take on it. Uh, without getting too controversial, I believe that nutrition is probably the single most overhawked product in the endurance and in the sporting world out there. I don't think that it's not important, but I think that the importance of it gets oversold from people who have something to sell you. I believe that it's part of that 1% issue that if outside of a dietary issue that you have or an imbalance in your body or an intolerance of something outside of that, you don't see a massive difference one way or the other until you've got everything else right. You know, so I don't want to say ignore it, but I do want to say don't stress over it. You find what works for you and you roll with that and you fine tune over time, just like anything else. But I don't, I've never known in the history of my life outside of someone who had an intolerance or a, mm -hmm. some huge gaping hole in their diet. I've never seen someone who became a different athlete or moved to another level because of a dietary change like white rice to brown rice mm -hmm. or not a lot of carbs to a lot of carbs. You see little improvements and those absolutely matter. But I see people who spend hundreds or thousands a year on things that net them less in return than putting five more hours in of training or sleeping better or taking care of mobility. Yeah, that's true. And I find a lot of things like if, if you're running low, like even supplements, like the things people run low on, like vitamin D, iron, your B vitamins, like sometimes like adding some of those like high quality supplements into your diet, I hate to say it, go a little further with how I feel than you know, doing all the nutritional tweaking in the book. So um, maybe we'll dive into that more one day when we feel like touching on the nutrition yeah. and supplement side of things. We'll, we'll get some messages about this. We will. But that's okay. I think it's a good conversation to have. Mm -hmm. um, uh, T. Mulvison, OCR. One of my guys, Tyler, what's up, buddy? Uh, says, best tips for managing hard efforts. I'd like to go hard enough to put in work without blowing up. I believe Tyler's been going out a little spicy in some of his workouts and then fading home, which I think you see a lot of people do. Um, I tell everybody, once we have this conversation, if people aren't great at pacing, um, I would rather see you negative split a workout than positive split a workout, especially if you're starting. So it's okay to put a governor on yourself the first couple of reps. You're going to feel way better about your effort if you start slow and know you have some in the tank and then compounding home. Uh, especially with the heat right now, which is, you know, just a conversation we had, I would make sure you go out conservative. You can make up for it in your later reps if you like. I'm not even really looking at your first reps a lot of times when I'm analyzing data. I'm looking at the middle and end of your workout to see what your stay power looks like. So no shame in going out too easy. 
especially if you're finding yourself blowing up. You're going to get your work in regardless. Trust me. Go out a little more conservative, and I think you'll feel a lot better about your efforts. Yeah. Every single world record from, I want to say, 3K on, but it might be 5K on, was set with a negative split of some sort. Mm -hmm. Or at the very least, closing down the last mile faster than the previous mile. And that's, that's not a coincidence. Our bodies really work well off of rhythm. Jarring pace changes are not good for our bodies and it's not good for our energy stores. It's just like smashing the accelerator in your car. You burn through energy way quicker than using your cruise control. And so that is exactly how I like to approach it. So my mindset for a runner is either to break the workout down into quarters, thirds, or halves, depending on what type it is. But no matter what it is, the first quarter, the first third, or the first half, you have to start, unless it's a workout designed to be spicy, you have to start at a pace that you know, worst case scenario, I can keep the whole time. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to the end of either the first quarter, third, or half, you take the rev limiter off and now you can crack the whip if you want and finish feeling like a rock star. And next time you know, okay, I can drop down two seconds per quarter or a 10 seconds per mile, whatever it's going to be. But blowing up in workouts is a good way to find your limits. But if you continually do it over and over, you're just not getting your benefit from it. So start out at the pace you know you can finish at, and then you can always pick it up. And if you're worried about not being able to get out in races, then you just build in some specific days where you start hard. But that doesn't have to happen very often. A lot of people also will try to say, okay, I'm going to run my quarter mile repeats at mile goal race pace. And they mm -hmm. say, I'm going to run where I want my fitness to be at, not where my fitness currently is at. And so say, if I want to run a 5K in 16 minutes, then I got to be able to run 5, 10 pace or under for my intervals, but they're not ready for that effort yet. And so people will often try to run intervals at their goal pace versus where they are currently at. That's a huge mistake a lot of people often make. And so don't get caught up in trying to run goal pacing if you're not quite sure you're ready for it either. I see, I see a lot of people blowing up when they approach things that way as well. Yeah. And I'm yeah. cool with goal pace, but I think you have to go in knowing what you're doing. Since it is your goal pace, you can't complete the full workout at it. So you have to know I'm going until my pace breaks and then I quit. And that's okay. That's the point of it. Or you go till pace breaks, you take an extended recovery, and then you finish the workout at what you currently can do. Yeah. But you can't expect to hit your goal pace at your current date fitness. It's just, that's not mathematically possible. Yeah. Um, next question is Tomas Faria OCR. It's another one of my guys, Tomas. Um, how would you approach training both for OCR and triathlon? And he's working through this with me right now. And I think some people are dabbling in triathlons. I would say the first place, if you're already running in OCR training, is to throw in the other modalities on your recovery days. Instead of running, add in a swim that day, or instead of running, add in a bike that day, and use those on your recovery days for two to four weeks just to get used to those modalities. Um, and then we can start talking more training. But at first, honestly, if you have a triathlon that's a way out, ways out, um, I would either, I would probably add in those those other facets on my recovery days to start. Maybe add a little run before or afterwards just to keep your running going. But um, I'd start there and then filter in some quality days in there. There's a lot of intricacies with that, so I don't want to dive too far into it. But I would say if you have something like that coming up, just start by putting time in. It doesn't have to be relevant or pertinent or high quality time. Just start putting time in on your recovery days. That's how I would start. What about you, Reckon? Yeah, I think it just depends which one you want to be best at. You obviously can't be 100% capacity for both. And whichever one happens, I think that's what determines it. So if you are want to be, if, you, if you're an OCR athlete who wants to do a triathlon, then I think you just always do your OCR work first. 
most triathletes double many times per week, some triple. And so your second or third workout can be your, your try stuff, but mm -hmm. your primary focus is your OCR. And like you said, easy and recovery days is when you're doing your other skill work. Or if you do your quality OCR work in the morning, you can do a quality swim workout at night or directly afterwards or hop on the bike afterwards. But you make your focus the first one. The other end of the coin is if you're a triathlon athlete who wants to have an OCR season as well, then I think all you really have to do is train fully for triathlon, but you make all of your run quality days compromised. Sure. And then you're set. You got your endurance off the bike from the swim, your brick workouts. You just do a lot of your running work as OCR specific and you get as much vert as you can on your regular days. But other than that, I think triathlon and OCR do work well hand in hand, but you just have to go in knowing I'm not going to be a rock star at both. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can leave it at that for now. If you wanted to look at programming for both, we would get pretty specific as far mm -hmm. as that goes. I've done triathlons. In fact, right out of college, um, I had a little power bar sponsorship, believe it or not. And I competed in Olympic distance. Um, oh, triathlon. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was in a weird phase of my life too, but um, and so I, I worked with it a little bit. I know you've done your triathlons before, so we have some knowledge mm -hmm. in that, but we're probably not the experts on it, but we can filter it into a program. If someone um, wants to follow an athlete, Justin Thornley, the guy who asked some questions earlier in this is a pretty darn good triathlete working mm -hmm. towards his pro card and also made his first Spartan elite podium this year. I want to say Arizona, he took third and he's already better than that. So he's, he might be the best example in the sport since Killian of someone that can do both. So follow his training. Yeah, sure. Um, this next question I like a lot. I think this is one of your athletes, uh, new athletes, Rohan Barr. Yeah, he started up yesterday. All right, well, Rohan. Australia, mate. What's up, brother? He says, biggest things the pros are doing every day that us regular Spartans are not. What, what are, are us top end athletes doing that the everyday, let's say competitive or age group or a open wave athlete is not? Uh, that's a great question. I like it because we could go a lot of directions with that. And it actually made me think a little bit. Do you have one thing that jumps out to you right away, Bracken? I have two. Okay. I two. think the first is that they're constantly analyzing how their training is preparing them for their race. Yep. They're not, most of them aren't outside of this time right now of COVID. In like a normal time period, they're not chasing CrossFit PRs or they're um, outside of a few people, like not chasing their best bikes or their best marathon. They're chasing their best preparation for their, their upcoming season. So I think there's just more specificity and removal of nonsense in a pros routine. I shouldn't say nonsense, but the not totally applicable stuff. But the second thing that I still believe most pros are doing that other people aren't is taking way more time to run easy and do mobility and the prehab stuff that a lot of people aren't. The more free time pros have, the more they do extra easy volume and body work. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, and you notice that a lot with all of our athletes, some of our past athletes too, how much time they're putting into recovery. It's insane. I would say that's the one overlooked thing that a lot of people um, aren't diving into enough. And that filters then into injuries and injury recovery, uh, getting yourself ready for your next hard effort by truly recovering in between. And that can filter into long-term results for sure. The one thing that I it sticks out to me is that top end athletes, you may not 
you know, for example, I'm going to use Hunter McIntyre, for example. If you follow Hunter McIntyre on social media, he is just a meathead bro who just pounds weights and runs hard and grunts a lot, right? If you know Hunter McIntyre like Bracken and I know Hunter McIntyre, he is probably one of the biggest nerds and students of endurance sports that I've ever met in my entire life. Myself included, you included, Bracken. We dissect every single aspect of a race of training, and we find a way to purposely focus on that. If you go back and listen to past athletes, um, you know, I notice I'm not great at heavy carry, so I put in a heavy carry block, and now I bulletproof that. Then I go and I'm not a great climber, so I put in a huge climbing block. We are dissecting every piece of the race, finding how to get that extra 1% to 5% out of our bodies and focusing on those things with purpose. We're not just randomly or sporadically saying, oh, this looks flashy. I'm going to do the Murph today. And then this looks flashy. I'm going to do compromise running because Kirk and Bracken talk about compromise running. And I'm going to do this very purposeful uh, breakdowns of what the race requires. And then we build workouts to appropriately tackle those. And I think mm -hmm. if you look at every athlete in our sport who's successful, they are such students of this sport. They are dissecting everything. And that's the one thing that I think uh, people are like, oh, I run and I lift and I do some rig work and that's good enough. You're only halfway there. So I would say that's the biggest thing that jumps out to me. That's a really good point. And while you were talking about that, it reminded me of one other aspect that it's a conversation I have a lot with athletes and it's managing the training load. One thing that you constantly hear when you talk to pro level athletes in their sport is is how their mindset towards their upcoming race is not tied to how they feel currently in training. Where the open wave or the age group wave, that athlete oftentimes, their belief in their fitness is whatever their last workout was. If they had a great workout, training program's awesome. They can't wait to keep going. If they've had a bad time trial or a bad workout, it's, man, I really think I need to change something up. Where a pro is like, I have been, Kirk, you tell me this so many times, like, man, my legs are fried right now. If I can hold this for another week or two, and then, and then I can maybe even extend it one more week of just feeling like dog crap, man, am I going to respond to my next deload and I'm going to be ready to crank something out big. And that's the difference where an athlete will, will a high level athlete will accept and kind of relish that overload period where I'm going to feel like crap for a while, accumulate a lot of fatigue so then I can deload and be at a new level rather mm -hmm. than I need to feel really good in training because it's more of a hobby for me. And so if I don't feel good, it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of times you're not supposed to feel good folks in training. Yeah. It's uh, the purpose, build up fatigue. So your body then recovers and builds itself more resilient to stressors, which ultimately makes you a better athlete and racer. Next question comes from Jim Bolaya 21. And this is an interesting question. I actually chuckled when I read this. If I didn't start running up until recently, does that mean I have young legs? Meaning I can train as if I was younger than I really am. <laughs> and I like that question one, because it's funny. And two, because it's actually a decent question. Because you find, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's, your, what's your first, uh, what's your first answer for, for Jim? And Jim, probably not. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless you let a really easy lifestyle, like everyone's got some pounding on their legs. It may not be run specific pounding. So you might have more years of running ahead of you, but I would train like the age you are, but just know that the later you start, the longer you have for improvement. Mm -hmm. You still might not want to jump into big mileage. Your knees still might ache on downhills, but you'll still keep improving past the time when other people your age who started earlier will. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's issues like my dad 
you know, ran for years and now he's got hip issues to the point where he just is only a biker now. And, and I know if he hadn't run his whole life, he might still be running today if he started later in life. So you have some wear and tear issues, especially in the joints, I find. And some of those tendons and ligaments can get pretty fired up over years of, of wear and tear. But like oxidization and the way like our bodies handle like um, the aging process, like unfortunately, we do become a little more brittle as we get older, no matter what. And um, I would say that the good thing is, is that you, yes, you still can improve if you started running later in life. Um, without question, I have athletes who haven't started running until they're 50 years old and now they're 55 and running the best they've ever run. So like, for example, absolutely, you can get better. Um, I, I don't think you have young legs, unfortunately, still. <laughs> I, I want to say yes, but I, I, I can't. You have but any that, that's not a kiss of death. Old man strength is a real thing. And late stage development happens in your career. So you don't need young legs or fresh legs. You just need a fresh mind. That's true. Bigger for training. And it also depends if you were an athlete of other sorts or if you had a laborious job. I mean, you could still have some wear and tear in your body um, that could come into play there. But uh, I still think that's an amusing question. Um, next, next question. I think we can touch on this real quick. Uh, Spartan Sophia asks, what are some exercises to improve grip for grip obstacles? The floor is yours, Bracken. Floor is mine. Well, we just asked Nicole Miracle about this. Mm -hmm. And she's a fan of doing, I mean, obviously, like pull-ups and dead hangs are great, but she likes pegboard or rock climbing based things where you have to use your fingers more, working on lock-offs and um, what is it, scapular engagement. Mm -hmm. But um, Hobie is a huge fan of simply pull-ups, rope climbs, and farmer's carries. He's a big believer in farmer's carry, weighted, heavy farmer's carry, and lighter, fast farmer carry. I think if you combine all those things together, you got yourself a good stew going. Yeah. I think the biggest thing, um, the biggest place people uh, miss the mark in this is they just simply do like bar work. They do dead hangs and they do um, the simple stuff, which all serves a purpose for sure, but it does not simulate a Spartan course. So if you can get on yourself a set of monkey bars, or if you only do have a bar to work with doing grip changes, doing uh, different things, hip taps, shoulder taps, and things that can uh, get you off of both hands at all times and get your body comfortable and aware of how it moves through space. In fact, if you are somebody who fails a lot of obstacles, um, it may not be a strength issue at all. It might be a body awareness issue. And for that person, I would say you need to be going to like a ninja gym once a week or twice a week and just simply playing around and working on your body's proprioception, which means it's awareness of its own self in space and just getting used to moving through things. That seems to be the biggest fail people make is they just sit there on the bar at home, which is great and that serves a purpose. But then when it comes to putting it into action, they just don't, the body just isn't quite natural through movements. And so I would say head to the ninja gym, honestly, if you're someone who fails obstacles and just start playing around, that would be step one for me. Yeah. I, I agree. Efficiency through obstacles is everything. All the time you see really strong people get hung up on obstacles and they hang there and twist until their grip gives out. And you see really light people who don't have a ton of like bulk strength just kind of float through it because they know how to use their momentum and, and move from thing to thing as efficiently as possible. It's no different than running. If you're squeezed and tense the whole time, you're going to burn out. Same thing with grip. You got to learn how to move through the space. And once you put in a good solid block of that, now you can hit that maintenance wise and just keep working on the strength required. Yeah. And something else that's interesting too, is some people who are new to this will like grab a bar and hang on, like grab it as hard as they can and squeeze for dear life. 
And you can actually burn yourself out a little quicker if you're using more strength than you need to. For example, you want to get some, through something with as little effort as possible, as little taxing as possible. So I don't go all out on the monkey bars sometimes. I'm, if it's a dry monkey bars, I'm going through it smoothly. I'm not hanging on for dear life. I'm not burning out my grip more than I need to. Um, you can only sustain maximal grip power for a short amount of time, 5, 10, 15 seconds. So sometimes it's just about relaxing through things. I don't know how else to describe it. Like some people get too tense and they wear themselves out. Stay relaxed. You're going to find that uh, getting through things uh, goes more smoothly for you. Um, next question from Can't Stop Nap. Knap says, do you use hot, cold contrast recovery methods, knees specifically, after hard work? Um, yes and no. I will say, uh, I don't, I think, first of all, heat has its place, uh, maybe before a workout to warm the body up. If you have some issues that are bugging you mostly to just promote blood flow to that area, it's really where, where it, uh, plays in, uh, icing afterwards. Uh, people like to, some like to ice before workouts, like, Oh, I got a bad knee. I'm going to ice it before I go out for a run. That's a huge mistake that uh, restricts blood flow. doesn't promote it. Um, but afterwards, then, if you want to reduce some inflammation, I'm not a big hot, cold contrast therapy guy. I've played with it. Sometimes it'll freshen my legs up, but I haven't seen any real long-term benefit from that. What about you? Well, I think that the further we go into history, um, the more it's shown that overall, icing has been shown to be a little bit overrated. Mm -hmm. That it does do what it's supposed to do, but should it? Like... Mm -hmm is reducing blood flow to an area actually beneficial? It's generally shown that no, right. unless you're looking like really long, I mean, really short-term turnaround. Like if you're a basketball NBA, like you, you, you're playing a back-to-back a -back road game, like yeah, icing afterwards is gonna get you more prepared to compete the next night, but it does, it limits your term to recover long-term because your blood is a recovery agent. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I believe that with it, with what I've read and what I've looked into, contrast therapy is more effective than icing alone. Mm -hmm. But man, I, I'm more of a, a believer of movement, taking things through range of motion and compression um, than I am of contrast therapy or ice baths. So I don't do ice baths really. Um, from time to time, I might, but it's generally when I'm super overheated rather mm -hmm. than when I'm sore. And I don't go out of my way for contrast therapy. I'll do it if I'm at a place that has it because it's better than not doing something, but I don't believe it's the magic elixir. So my physical therapist, who is a high, high, high level athlete. Um, in fact, the only reason I am allowed to see him is because I got a referral through Adam Thielen, which is a Minnesota Vikings football player. Um, Ooh, look at that name so drop. Well, I don't know him personally, but my buddy does who got the referral from Adam, who gave me the referral. It's like two degrees of separation. However, um, this guy knows his stuff. This is his life work. The guy is a guru. This is who I see weekly. And his first thing he said is stop taking ibuprofen and stop icing. Because when we deal with bone issues, we deal with joint issues, um, tendons, ligaments, they have a restricted blood flow already. That's why um, we don't uh, they don't recover quickly, and that's why we have issues with them. Um, so why restrict blood flow more to a place that already has restricted blood flow? So he says, leave it alone completely. Um, the problem, the reason they don't heal quickly is, again, a blood flow issue. So we actually want to keep that inflamed. We want to keep it promoting blood flow. Um, and so he told me to stop icing instantly. And so now I back way off the icing. I don't take my ibuprofen. And I notice, again, short term, uh, I don't. Um, excuse me, short term, 
uh, yeah, you notice a difference, but long term, uh, it's been helpful. Yeah. 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 I, I completely agree. If I had to choose one piece of recovery other than a nap, it'd probably be like Normatech boots. Yeah. Never heard back from those guys, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. We messaged Airelax about getting a product review and we didn't, we didn't hear back. So maybe Normatech, you're next. But yeah, that yeah. compression boot, getting blood moving, I think is more important than getting it out of the way. Mm hmm. Next question. This one comes in. Uh, this guy gives us a lot of good questions. Uh, Patrick Chavez mm. said, could you all discuss the millimeter drop on running shoes and how they affect the runner, i.e. a zero millimeter drop versus a 12 millimeter drop? This question I like a lot. And I'm going to caveat this as well. Uh, Brian Gawiski, B. Gawiski, asked us another question. And his is, what's a good OCR shoe that is wide and has a decent drop, six to 10 millimeters? Thanks, you guys rock. And Brian Whiskey's having Achilles issues right now. Um, I'm not sure if you knew that. So he's having an issue with low drop shoes. Um, so where do you want to dive into that one first, Bracken? I think I want to start by saying that there's not a magic cure-all for this. Um, mm -hmm. I don't believe that the barefoot movement is what everyone should do. And I don't think that high drop is what everyone should do. I think you have to pair it to your body type, your stride type, and very importantly, what kind of terrain you're running on. So quickly, the science behind is that the lower your drop gets, the more natural your stride is, the way you would run if you're barefoot. Yep. But I don't think people should confuse the way you would naturally run with the best way to run. Because naturally, people always make that you know statement, you know, our, our ancestors didn't run with, with cushion shoes. No, but they didn't do 100-mile weeks. Correct. You know, um, they maybe were on their feet a lot, but they weren't pounding concrete for 80 to 100 miles. And so I don't believe we should, I don't think that's a valid argument. So the lower you drop gets, the more natural your stride is, but the more you might have issues with Achilles or calf issues because you're not used to it. And because you now have to formulate your stride to fit that shoe. Or when you stay between that like three and seven mil drop, it's a pretty natural feeling for most people because it strikes that balance. It's low enough that you're not crazy up on your toes but it's high enough that you're not overstressing a single area. Once you get above that, that like eight to 12 area, that's something that really promotes being a little bit more downward facing. And it actually does, again, start stressing the calves and Achilles. Yeah. The low drop and the very high drop kind of does the same thing. And, uh, and there's some reason for that, but in that, the higher your drop is, the more it promotes quick transitions to your toes. That's why when the Nike Vaporflies first came out, they had a 10 mil drop. They did a lot of testing. They found out that 10 mil was the ideal drop for hitting midfoot and quickly springing forward off your toes. In the Alpha Flies, they actually lowered it down to nine or eight because they found that even though 10 was optimal mechanically, a lot of people had Achilles and calf issues from running on a spongy shoe with the carbon plate quick transition at that high of a drop. So they lowered a little bit. So even though like scientifically you can say one thing's the best if it makes your body feel bad it's not good so i, I think that's the, my my preamble for everything i'm about to say um the, the the next part is that the lower your drop is the more stable you are on trails so i'm really happy racing three to four mil drop off road but on the roads i'm racing six to ten mil drop because it's a different type of cushioning and i don't have to worry about rolling my ankles so long story short you mess around with it you find the thing that works for you but I'm a believer of having a range. 
I like having some three to four mil drop and some some six to eight mil drop in order to balance out the type of, of landing my feet are doing. But if I had to choose one to race in, I raced at three to six. If I could only have one to race and train, it'd be three to six for me. But again, that is me personally. I don't want to prescribe a drop for people. Yeah. And just to clarify what this is, guys, in cases some people might not know what like, the drop really means. Uh, and that's just how much higher the heel is compared to the forefoot of your shoe. So a 10 millimeter drop would mean that the heel is raised 10 millimeters above the forefoot of the running shoe. So your, your foot would be on a slightly downward angle in your shoe. Um, it is totally a personal preference thing, as Bracken said. And I, th I find a lot of this has to do with where your foot strikes under your body. Um, like for me, uh, if you like have this big galloping stride and you have that braking effect, sometimes running in a high drop shoe can just exacerbate that and exaggerate it. Whereas if you have a high quick turnover and a high cadence and your foot striking right under your center of mass, some people do better with a lower drop shoe in that case. So it really is customized to your personal biomechanics. And, and I can't stress that enough. Um, experimenting is the way to go. I have found that high drop shoes make me feel inefficient. I feel like I'm heel striking a little more and it just doesn't work for me. So the lower, the better. I do really good in a zero drop shoe. I feel like I hit the forefoot of my, my, my foot nicely. I get a nice return off of the, the ground back into my you know legs. And, and that just is what works for me. To Brian Gawiski's question, as far as a higher drop shoe, one that I like that had a little bit wider toe box that was a six millimeter drop. And Bracken, I think you're going to agree with me on this because it's hard to find high drop shoes um, for racing that people like. It really is. I think it's easier to find low millimeter drop shoes. Uh, the Scott Supertrack RC. Uh, and I don't even know if you can find them anymore. Atkins used yeah. to wear them. Lindsay, Lindsay Webster uh, wore them. We love those shoes. And that's what I wore until I got sponsored by VJ, who I now love. Um, but that's got a six mil drop, I think. The Scott Supertrack RC, super responsive, and it, and it races really well. Um, that's the shoe I'd probably point Brian at, oddly enough. What do you think? Uh, I, yeah, I, I do like that. And they updated it with a new colorway the next year, and then they changed it to the Kimbalu XC or RC. It mm. looks identical to what the Supertrack RC was. The Kimbalu no longer looks like it used to be. Now it looks like the other one. So I'm not sure the exact specs on that new shoe, but I think Johnny had a pair. So he might be a guy to talk to about that. Um, and Aaron Newell's a Scott guy as well. He not He's not a Scott guy like currently. He runs for VJ, but he's used them in the past, and he has a relationship with the company, I think. So he might be a good guy to, guy to message if, you, uh, if you're interested about that. But Brian has exceptionally fat feet. So he <laughs> he doesn't fit in a whole lot of a lot of shoes out there. So he always raced well in the extra wide 212s from Innovate that had that six mil drop, mm -hmm. but they were wide. And he's right. He the the industry right now doesn't have a lot of wide shoes that are also stripped down racers. Mm -hmm. The wide shoes are the ultras, and those are zero mil drop, and that's a tough deal. Yeah. So you can get around that by buying um, footbed inserts from super feet or things like that that are designed for performance and give you extra drop but now that's opening up a can of worms so i don't have a great wide foot recommendation i would go on running warehouse and other places and search all the trail racing shoes and try to find which ones come in widths yeah um all right next young alfred asks best type of hill workouts exclamation point 
I don't want to spend more than a minute on this. I want to tell you that the best type of hill workouts is hill work. Go run hills and do them a lot. Do them often. If you haven't listened to the Nicole Miracle episode that came out on Friday, she only runs elevation, which blew my mind. She spends like 5% of her time running the flats. You can't go wrong with any type of hill work. I don't care what it is. If you're not doing hill work, if you're not getting elevation game at least twice a week, uh, you are you are not accessing the top level of your fitness. And I'm going to leave it at that. You just need to be hitting it often. All right. I'll say the best type of hill work is whatever your best, your favorite flat workout is, but done on a hill. If you like VO2 max intervals, do them uphill. If you like tempo runs, do them uphill. If you like long runs, do it on a hilly course. Mm-hmm. All of it. You got to do it all. You got to work all your systems. Race pace, faster than race pace, slower than race pace, long and easy. Do it all, but do it on climbs or descents. You know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm stuck here up north. So guys, I'm like basically in Canada right now, by the way. I'm looking out at the lake. Uh, and I, I, the one prerequisite when I go on vacation, this is just a side tangent is I will not rent a cabin. We just Airbnb this cabin for the week. Um, I won't rent one that doesn't have a ski hill within an hour of it because I, it's so important to me to get my gain in guys that I will not, I will not, you will not lose this battle with me. I need to have a cabin with access to vert. Um, because I've realized how important it is. I can't go a full week without it because I'm too dialed into my training. Um, so we found a ski resort. I got this tiny little hill. Jess and I are actually going to this after we record. We're going right to the hill. I got a hundred foot gain. It's yeah. one hill. It goes 101 feet up. It's a bowl. It's got two sides. It's an odd little thing. It's got like ski runs coming like that. directions. So uh, I'm hitting some short, spicy hundred foot gain repeats today, Bracken. Yeah. But the caveat, the point I'm making is it's so important to run hills that I dictate where I vacation off of it. <laughs> if that's not compulsion with training, I don't know what is. Hey, some people make sure that their hotels and ha- has a casino attached. Some people have to have a an, a gentleman's establishment. Some people have to have you know a museum nearby. What well, a hobby's a hobby. Yeah, two prerequisites: the lake has to have good fishing, and there has to be a ski hill within an hour. Um, all right, Gary uh, Kirshner asks: Can aerobic threshold improve on an older athlete over 45 and by how much so can threshold improve in an older athlete that's a can of worms isn't it bracken yeah um i'm gonna say yes or no depending on what your athletic history is if you're new to the sport yeah of course if you're under trained absolutely the first thing to go is your anaerobic threshold your top end speed that kind of stuff and the last thing to go is your aerobic engine. Yep. So if you've done 15, 20 years of aerobic work, uh, no, you're not going to improve it. If you haven't, yeah, go ahead and improve it all the way until you can't anymore. Yep. This goes back to my 50-year-old athlete. I have like three in particular right now who definitely have higher aerobic thresholds right now um, because they didn't start training until they were 50. And at 55, now they're crushing life. Whereas if you've been training your whole life... Um, yeah, your anaerobic threshold, unfortunately, is going to take kind of a dip. <laughs> but your aerobic threshold holds strong. That's why, who is it? We were, were you talking to somebody, Bracken, or maybe I read this somewhere where it said, you know, as as I get older, I just pick longer races and I keep winning them. So point being is your aerobic threshold really lasts a long time. Christ, you can be a good ultra marathoner. If you look, do a Google search and say, like, ultra marathoners in their 60s. And you will see a handful of people who are still placing in ultras in like their 60s because they can hold on to that aerobic state for a lot longer. So 
for what that's worth anyways, uh, all is not lost, but that high end capacity starts to deteriorate when you get older. Anything you want to add to that? No, we nailed it. Okay. I love this next question. I love this question. And I want you to answer this question, Bracken, in like a 30 second elevator speech. Okay. Okay. I want you to, I want you to just, just be pointing it with it. Cause it's a tough one to answer. Pressure's on. Matthew R. West asks, what's the point of a time trial on a track when you're an OC athlete running on the trails? And he's pigeonholed, he's pigeonholed us because we talk about the time trials, yet we are OCR athletes. So what do you have to say to Matthew R. West? I'd say on one side of the coin, it doesn't matter. Go do your 5K time trial on the trails. Just do it on the same trail every time so you can judge um, how good you get or your progression or lack thereof. However, I like doing it on a track at least half the time because there is a track in every city, in every state in America and in most European cities. So you always have a place to test accurately. And the final piece, I'm at like 20 seconds, is Mm -hmm. that there is nothing more mentally miserable than running a 5K on the track. And mental component is everything in racing. If you can get through a solo 5K, there is nothing in this world you can't get. I believe that took you uh, uh, like 33 seconds. Oh, it's not, not bad. Um, great question, by the way. That's a fantastic question. And and I, the one thing I'll say to that is, I'll, I'll piggyback what you had said is, you it's consistent anywhere you go. And there's no other variables that you can take into consideration when gauging your fitness. So whether you live in Thailand or you live in the US, you can find a track and you can gauge your fitness. Um, no matter to the terrain you have, uh, access to. So it's just, it's like your centerpiece. It's like your control group in an experiment. You need to have a control group and the track is your control group. Um, and if you get better on, you know, undulating terrain, you're going to get better. It, that, that will show through on a track. I, I believe an increase in fitness will show through on all types of time trials and terrain. So it's, it's important because it's still the centerpiece to this all, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's also why we prescribe uphill time trials, downhill, OCR, you know, there's other pieces that test the skill. This tests toughness and it is a sterile environment. Yeah. I don't know if I want to add more to that. We could probably go on a big tangent with that, but um, good question. Um, Adam L. Beach asks, how to do altitude training right? Should I move to Colorado? Question mark. <laughs> well, back in <laughs> you moved to Colorado and you crawling back to Wisconsin, didn't you? I can tell you this. If we had a family we didn't get along with, we would still be in Colorado. Family won out over ideal training grounds. That was the only reason we came home. Um, I don't know where you live. I don't know what your situation is like. But if you want to move to Colorado, if you're excited by it and your family and your financial situation give you the chance to, yeah, go do it. Everyone should experience Colorado. How to do it correctly? You have to go in knowing that everything's a system overload at first. Running is harder. Sleeping is harder. Some people get nosebleeds at first. Some people have like insomnia at night or they keep waking up short of breath at night. You just have to go in knowing that you're slowly poisoning yourself. You're dying slightly for the first couple of weeks because you have a lack of oxygen. And that is how Mm -hmm. humans die. So you are poisoning yourself for a little bit and then it comes back. So you have to rein everything in. You forget about paces, just like heat. And you go off exertion and heart rate for a while, and then you get back to it. But if I had one quality day piece of advice, it would be shorten your intervals. I fought banging my head against the wall trying to do my normal tempo runs and my normal intervals because I had to hit numbers rather than hitting work. As soon as I started shortening intervals, everything got better in my life. Yeah. When you go to altitude, you almost have to 
throw pace out the window and just go off of effort. Uh, you'll save yourself a big mental uh, heartache if you do that. And the other thing, um, I'm just going to speak from experience here, Bracken, and and a lot of people, a lot of people like to beg on racers when they use the elevation or altitude race excuse. Um, going to elevation is tough, and I can't race my best, and yada yada. Uh, that's a hundred percent true. It's crap. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you what. So the only time I've raced at elevation was Tahoe this last year where I gave myself two weeks to acclimate. Otherwise, I've flown out the day before, raced at elevation, and sucked it up. And I will tell you that it was a night and day difference between how I felt after acclimating for two weeks. And science shows it takes four to six weeks to fully acclimate to altitude. So I was only beginning the process with my two weeks. Um, it's the first time I felt control uh, in control of my effort at altitude was when I gave myself a two-week buffer to, to acclimate. I also brought a pulse oximeter with me, Bracken, which is a little thing that put that's put on your finger when you go to the doctor. And it says, oh, your oxygen saturation is good. Uh, you don't need to go to the ER right now, basically. When I got to elevation, I stayed at 8,700 feet before Tahoe. And my pulse oximeter read between 88 and 90% oxygen saturation. And at sea level, it read 99% oxygen saturation, So, which it should. By the time I raced Tahoe two weeks later, it had read roughly 95 to 96% oxygen saturation, which meant my body adapted in two weeks to help me utilize oxygen better at that elevation. So if you're looking at in a race standpoint, you, I think you need two weeks before a race to actually go out and race somewhat close to your potential. If you're going out there the day or two before, I am telling you right now, it is going to be a 70% version of your capability. That's every time I've gone to altitude and race, that's been my experience. So I don't know if you're asking about like just altitude training in general, or if you're asking about racing your best, but I believe at minimum, you need a two week buffer to race your best. If there's going to be anything above five, 6,000. How do you feel about that? I agree. I do. It is one of the most unfair setups on the planet is is altitude versus non-altitude. If you are trying to be an endurance athlete, I don't think there's a better advantage you can get than to be born at altitude. And if you can't be born there, then you move there as soon as you can. And if you can't move there as soon as you can, you train there as often as you can for training blocks. It's what works historically worldwide for athletes and anyone who's raced at altitude can tell you that it is absolutely real. I lived the first 26 years of my life sea level. And then I lived the next sea at altitude, next three at altitude. And then since then the last, what is that? Four back at sea level. Mm -hmm. And it is not quite night and day, but it's close in my race um, performance and the way I feel fitness wise in my numbers when I lived at altitude. It's crazy. It's a huge difference. I roll my eyes when I see race excuse posts like, oh, my flight was delayed and I didn't get sleep and this. And I just want to smack somebody and say, just save it. Like we all have things that pop up. But uh, so save your, you know, your excuse for yourself. However, when I see the altitude thing and I know somebody went to elevation, I think it's a real I think it's a real thing. I don't think you need to proclaim it to the world, but it's it's physiological. It's something that's out of your control. Um, so anyways, you got to get somewhere early. If you want to race your best, you got to get there at least two weeks early and acclimate. Otherwise, uh, you're going to be at a detriment. We have uh, two more questions, Bracken. That's it. And then, right. then this thing is done, guys. 
I'm going to have to go edit it and throw it up quick. Yeah, we, we are behind the eight ball here. I bet you when we get done recording this, because now it's, what, 11 a.m., we're going we're gonna to have some messages being like, where is the episode? You guys are failing. Um, Colin Lee OCR uh, asks, back exercises for OCR. And the reason I like that question is because back, when I think about it, really means pull exercises for OCR. And we only really pull in OCR. We don't push. We pull the hercoist. We pull a sled drag. We pull ourselves, in a sense, across obstacles, up a wall. Um, do you have any go-to pull exercises for OCR? First of all, I don't like that question because that's a sentence fragment, not a sentence. It's, he was probably just lazy. Yeah, well, let's not have that, guys. Come on. Let's have yeah. some semblance of society and decency in these times. Yeah, Colin. No, um... I like, and I got this from Hunter, I'm, I've become a huge fan of bent over rows and prone bench rows. Mm -hmm. Heavy weight, row hard. It really hits me right where I feel like I need it in this sport. And then combining that with heavy tire pulls towards me or sled loaded up in hand over hand, all of my exertion to have to do that. I like when I row or I do something like that pulling towards me, and it's the same thing with, with uh, weighted poles or chins, I want to have to use every fiber of my being to move it. I think that's the single most important thing you can do as an OCR athlete. Think about that feeling when you go to lift that tire up, that 400-pound tire, when you talk about every fiber of your being, uh, mm -hmm. that is the feeling you want to simulate in training. And when you talk bent over rows, heavy, by the way, go like heavier, the better. If you're doing 20 reps of something, you're missing the mark. I'm talking that, you know, six to eight rep range, four to eight rep range, bent over rows. The big key here with pull exercises is firing up your rear chain. And by your rear chain, I mean, from the base of your neck all the way down to your calves, a bent over row is going to fire up your entire rear chain, your erector spine, your glutes, your hamstrings putting a heavy bent over road, dumbbells, barbells, whatever you can find is going to stimulate that nervous system and those all, every muscle that's involved in a pull motion. So bent over rows, I couldn't agree with you more, man. Heavy bent over row is, is a great, uh, a great stimulator of your, of your system. I generally bent over when I do my bent over rows, I'm using the weight that I would bench for the same weight. So how much are you bent over rowing then? Well, like for, for high rocks, I would do supersets where I do uh three by five, bench right I, I do five bench right into hop up because i have more i have multiple barbells right into bent over row and i might do 205 or 215 on bench right into 205 or 215 on row heavy training yeah when nicole said something great she talked about with her grip work having to brace that's how i think about lifting there's the lifting that you can go through the motions and there's the lifting where you have to Fill your entire chest cavity and everything with air and brace against it. That's the lifting I think endurance athletes need to do, especially our sport. And that's how my back work has to be. If I am not braced, I couldn't do the lift. That's how my pulling work goes. Do you know what that that uh, is called when you have to brace or go, huh? do you know what that movement's called? I'm going to teach you I something. don't. It's called the Valsalva maneuver. And the Valsalva maneuver is when you hold your breath and it's like if you sit on the toilet to go to the bathroom and you push, it's the same motion. Um, the Valsalva maneuver, when it takes so much focus that you have to basically tense up your whole body to get it done. Um, it's actually how uh, Elvis Presley died. He sat on the toilet to go to the bathroom and he pushed. And that dude was on so many uh, 
nervous system suppressants that his heart's heart stopped and he died from the, wow. uh, the old Valsalva maneuver. Um, but yeah, I agree with that. And the other thing I'll add to that is um, the one minute, uh, the, the five second pull up for a minute. So one of my favorite go-tos that hits grip and pull is you simply do one pull up every five seconds for a minute. So you hang for five seconds, pull up, hang for five seconds, pull up, hang for five seconds, pull up. Uh, that works your grip and it also works your pull strength. And it's a great, like one minute of that. I think you hit 12 pull-ups in a minute. Um, just kind of hits me just right. I like to finish with that, that movement. So something you guys should add into your repertoire. Um, Bracken, thank you for uh, muting the ambulance going by there. It is just a, a dangerous area on these streets, Kirk. Yeah, I got to mute like the birds chirping outside my windows up here in northern Minnesota. Um, the last question before we wrap this thing up. We've arrived. Aimsta6201. Aimsta says, you say training log. What do you actually put in your training log? How is it organized? I would like that info. <laughs> <laughs> and we do reference a training log a good bit so i think that's a fair yep. question um what do you think bracken i look at my training log like a historical record it doesn't have to be a diary but it has to tell me what happened at that point in time so i can look back and learn from history and either avoid repeating it or repeat it with refinements so my easy days might say something like 45 minutes 6.8 miles trails and that might be it. Or it might say like, so hot and muggy, felt terrible, turned off pace, just tried to keep my heart rate under 148. Mm -hmm. um, there's times it just says trails 4.8 miles easy. And it's nothing. My quality days, if I'm doing 20 by 400, let's say at 10K pace, I will write every split down. It'll say 79, 80, 79, 5, 82, 1, 82, 8. And it'll say the whole thing. And then it'll say my average at the end. I'll average it out for the workout. And then I'll also put my perceived effort throughout there. I'll write what shoes I was in, what surface I ran on. So I know I can compare directly each time. So my what I want to be able to do with this, and it's the same thing I tell my athletes or people who ask this, I want to be able to see every trend and every reason why. I don't need a novel every day, but if I look back and I've had something hurting or something that stopped hurting or my performance got worse or it got better, I know exactly why with my historical record. Mm -hmm. um, I've mentioned this before, but my college coach told me a workout is never completed until it is written down. And that's something that has stuck with me now for the last uh, two decades. Um, and, and I don't know about you guys, but when I write something down is when I actually process it it like sticks in my like brain, like when I take the time to write it on paper and then those those things sit, sit in me better. So um, the biggest thing I think about it, and I actually do the same thing as you, Brack, and I write my every split down to the 10th, I write down my average, and then I write workout notes about how I felt, hey, still feeling Saturday's long run, need to recover, this workout didn't go as well as I had planned, um, things like that. So I probably write a, a three sentence paragraph and I write all my splits. Um, the big thing that you really want to use it for, guys, is understanding why you raced the way you raced. You look back, and I and I look at a good race I had, and I look at the three weeks prior. It's always a three-week window for me for some reason. I'm always looking at the previous three weeks. And you're going to start to understand patterns in your training and your racing that work for you. And it's very different for everybody. But the big thing is understanding how you how your body responds to stimulus. So 
Um, it's, it's a journal. It's a journal of knowledge that's customized to only you. It's not a book that is a blanket statement of recommendations. It is history of your uh, performances. So as, the more detail, the better, in my opinion. But it all comes back to how did I feel on race day? And I always go back to those races. And then I backdate three weeks to see what led me up to that point. Everything, I, I have a few pieces that have to be on every day. The first is the duration. The second is the distance. The third is the effort. The fourth is the location. So mm -hmm. I always have those. And then I also always have my vertical gain. Yep. I, I just always have it. No matter what, I have those things. And I color code mine, Kirk. I like to be able to look back through and have efforts jump off at me. So when you were growing up, do you remember those, those pens you had that you could click and you had different colors on it? Yes, I do. I buy those off Amazon <laughs> and I use those for my training log. So black ink is for aerobic work. Red ink is for quality day. Green ink is for strength work and blue ink is for racing. You are seeing some compulsion come out of Bracken Cracker right now. Mm -hmm. And I can scroll back through and it's really easy to pick up my quality days and and it feels, something feels good about writing down in red. Like, yeah. I got into it today. I wrote that down in red. This is a, this is an effort here. This is something I can put my stamp on and be proud of. And every time I put green down, I know like green for spinach for the Hulk. Like I, <laughs> I, I got stronger today. And the black, I feel comfortable writing down that black ink. Like every time I write it down, I know it doesn't have to look impressive. Like this ink doesn't stand out. It's just on paper. It's normal text. This is normal effort. I don't have to be impressive on this day. I just have to fill up the page with black ink. What uh, what do you use for a log? What what do you write this on? I'll show you right now, Kirk. I would love to see. Oh, the audience can't see it, but just a little uh, a little notebook. It's a notebook. That's a notebook, and here's my little pen with the oh, different. You're not. You're not. Is that a four color pen there? Yeah, yeah. This is the classic four color made by Bic. Nice. I want to just touch on talk about being a student of the sport and doing the little things and what the pros are doing differently than you're doing. Bracken, you just like outline that in such a great way. I, I just saw his stupid little pen and his stupid little notebook and his stupid little nuances with him logging his things. And that is like one of many examples of what it takes to be good in a sport like this. And it's within arm reach of me. He, I can reach out and grab it. He just reached out and grabbed it. And I, I think, you know, we go back to this debate. I don't mean to go on this tangent, but I do. We go back into this debate, like, are you exercising or are you training? Mm -hmm. And are you training with purpose? And we talked about this with high mileage versus low mileage. Um, I haven't seen much more purpose than a four-colored pen written on a notebook <laughs> to outline that training day. And that sort of mentality is filtered through everything an elite-level pro does. Uh, no, I got away from this. For the past year, I did not do this. I got back into this when I started prepping for high rocks and recommitted to being the best I could be. Now, I also keep an online version. I have a redundancy one where I just keep details like mileage, vert, paces, things like that. So Isn't I have it in two spots. Isn't that Strava? Uh, I don't trust third-party apps not to lose my stuff. And Strava just came out and removed all that stuff from us unless I, you're paying premium. I'm paying premium. I already had been. Yeah. Um, anyways... The last point I want to make about this, and I know we're not even at, we're going on a tangent, not answering his question at this point, but I know all I need to know about myself and my fitness by how I'm using my log. When I am clicking 
I can't wait to write my results in at the end of each workout mm. because I know like this is a result right here. And I'm going to look back on this in eight weeks when I'm about to race and I'm going to gain confidence from looking at this result. And when I'm like, oh man, I haven't recorded in two days. I know that my training's not where it needs to be. Yeah. When you get home from a workout that you just smashed, sometimes I grab my log before I even stretch or do my recovery mm-hmm. stuff. And I just want to bang those out right away, write it down, get it done. Cause I'm so proud of that effort. In fact, those, those weeks I'll have like sweat drips on my paper where the, where the paper kind of crinkles up because I went to it so quickly that I couldn't wait to put it down. I was just about to say, if you didn't know anything about running, you could tell me what my best workouts were by the ones that have sweat drips on it. Because I wrote that down before I stopped sweating. That's so funny. Huh? Two peas in a pod, Bracken. That's right. Um, you want me to send you a clicky pen? Uh, I'll just get one on my own. Uh, all right. That's very nice of you. Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to wrap this thing up. I think we hit the questions that came in in the last day. If I missed you, I always say this at the end of this. I'm sorry. Um, guys, we are three ratings and reviews shy of 200 on Apple Podcasts. That's big time. Not only would it make our day to see that hit 200, but it would also add you to the pool of the contest winner potential with uh, the ratings and reviews. So if you could go, again, we have two weeks left in this contest if you write us a review. Uh, Again, it can't just be a rating. It has to be a written review. We're going to add you to the pool for a free month of coaching. Uh, Help get us to 200, folks. Uh, That would make our day. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's awesome. And we crossed over a thousand Instagram followers this week. So only 9,000 to go until we qualify for a blue check mark. Yeah, no we're rolling. We, we are rolling. Uh, anything else you want to add before we wrap this thing up today, sir? No, I need to get I need to get editing so we can put this up within the hour. Yeah, you do. And if my audio is crap, guys, I thank you for being patient and getting to this point in the podcast. I'm going to uh, like factory laptop built-in speaker today and i apologize if it's grainy yeah brayden if you're listening wear your black shirt this friday so (laughs) we don't ever run into this again